If you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, or your scripture journal, I want to invite you to open with me to Luke in chapter 6. Luke in chapter 6. We're going to consider verses 27 through 36 this morning. And just as a couple of reminders, immediately after service, if you're a member here, just hang back. We're going to have a, a church conference. A lot of good, exciting information will be in that. We're having a life group information meeting directly after conference, so hang back for that as well. Um, and then next week, no Sunday school, okay, because it's Easter. And so we are going to uh, have our Easter service outside, but it's going to be in this grass right here by the uh, handicapped spots rather than at the soccer field. So make sure next week you bring your lawn chair, okay? Or, you know, if you want to sit Indian style on the grass while it's wet, you can do that, okay? But bring your lawn chair, right? <laughs> And be here, it's going to be at 10, like a normal worship service, and we're going to worship the risen Lord together that day, so we're excited for that. But uh, for our time together today, Luke and 6, 27 through 36, if you got to say, I got it. All right, let's read this together. God's Word says, but I say to you, this is Jesus speaking, of course, I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. The one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. Verse 32. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies, do good, and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. Amen. It's God's Word. May God write its eternal truths on all of our hearts. Let's take a poll. How many of you, raise your hand, it's going to be okay, nobody's going to confuse you for Pentecostals, all right? How many of you have purchased a new technology, phone, TV, tablet, computer, whatever, in say the last five years? Have you done that? Pretty much everybody, right? Surely you remember that when you got this new piece of technology and you got home and you unboxed it, you found that it came with a default mode, right? Default mode or default settings. These are the settings that your phone or your computer comes out of the box with. So for example, like a phone, you get your phone, take it home, open it up, set it up. It's, it's already set to go to sleep after a certain amount of minutes. It has a default ringtone and text tone or wallpaper, etc. And you know that those default settings will stay that way unless you take action. Isn't that true? Unless you take action to change them. If you don't intentionally go into the settings and change them, they'll stay like that forever. In other words, you can't simply wish that the settings were different and they'll magically change, right? We know this. Nor could you simply wait and hope that over time they would change on their own. You have to deliberately Go in and change those settings to your liking. In a similar way, you and I have default modes in our hearts. 
and in our minds. We, we have default settings that we will naturally do in pursuit of something or in response to something. Our hearts are hardwired with these settings that will remain the same unless some action is taken to change those default settings from the inside out. Like our phones, we can't simply sit back and hope they change, nor can we simply wish they were different. When it comes to love, all of our default settings say to love those who are appealing to us, people who we like, who look like us, people who agree with us and have the same tastes as us, or those who have the same interests as us, or people who will reciprocate our love. And that love is conditional and may have an expiration date. If, if the love isn't given in return, if the expectations we place on reciprocity aren't met, then we can withdraw love. Yes, that's how we're hardwired. Those are our default settings. That what's, that's what makes sense to us. Those are the settings of our heart. And Jesus knows this well. He knows what our default settings are. He knows that our love can be flimsy based on primarily attraction or similarity and above all, reciprocity. And what he wants from people who know him, who are citizens of his better, superior kingdom, is for their default settings to change. And that's the essential point of this text that we're considering this morning. Jesus looks at the default settings of the fallen heart, and he sees the disciple who has been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's marvelous son, and he says, let's change those default settings. This text is aiming at precisely this. But it's even more than that, isn't it? Because when you read this text, we can't help but think, wait, this can't be right. Surely he didn't mean this. And, and there's our sure sign that he really did mean it. Because if what he is saying is against our natural inclination, then it's our hearts that need changed, yes? Not his commands that need to be softened or work around. Jesus is after changing us from the inside out as he loves us. And our loving, like the world, like the world loves, is what our default setting mode is. And he says this needs to be altered. Jesus is after our loving people who we wouldn't naturally love. People who we think are unlovable. People who can't reciprocate. And people who actually would rather see bad things befall us or even in the midst of their ensuring our pain. Love them. Now, I know that when we get through this sermon today, there's about a million situations will pop into our head, right? And you'll wonder how these principles apply to those. But does it apply here? Does it apply there? Do I always have to do that? But do I always have to do this? What about this situation or this one or another one? This misses what Jesus is actually doing here. He isn't trying to cover every circumstance that you may face in life. He's trying to change how you think and respond completely. To change our default settings on love. To cause you to love in an otherworldly kind of way. He's after an ongoing heart posture, reorientation, that asks at every turn, how would Jesus have me love? But let's be honest, who wants to love like this? You read 27, 36, who, who wants to love like this? You want to love like this? You want to love people who hate you and curse you and hurt you. 
That seems so counterintuitive, so inconvenient, so against what we would rather do. And maybe that's the point. Steve Timmis says, he wrote a book called, I Wish Jesus Hadn't Said That. And he said it like this on this topic. I don't want to love my enemies. In my worst moments, I want to hurt them, gossip about them, undermine them, and generally make them pay. In my better moments, I simply want to ignore, sideline, and ostracize them. If I am not in a position to retaliate, I can at least wait until someone or something else makes sure my enemy gets their comeuppance. Then I can sit and gloat. I can enjoy the warm satisfaction that they finally got what they deserved. But Jesus says none of that is an option for the follower of his. Deeper than that, none of those desires is an option for his follower. Truly, when we read Jesus' word here, our impulse is to say, this can't be right. Surely he did not mean this, but it is right. He did mean it. And the reason it's so confrontational The reason it's against all of our impulses of how we should respond to enemies is because his ethic is flipping all of the world's ethics on their head. It's because Jesus brings an upside-down kingdom with him, and he expects those who follow him to reorient their way of thinking to his way so they see and respond to the world, bring it into alignment with his vision. But truly, we say Jesus brings an upside-down kingdom, but it's the world's ethic, yes? That is upside down. Jesus is right side up. It's the world that's flipped over, not Jesus. But his words sound strange to the world because we're used to this skewed approach to life in a fallen world and in our fallen hearts. But Jesus doesn't just mean to get us to heaven when we die. He means to remake us right now. For us to be a taste of heaven on earth. And this includes how we see and treat all people, including those we would consider enemies. Jesus' radical words start immediately with no warning in verse 27, don't they? Love your enemies, he says. And I imagine, don't you, that when this audience was hearing this for the first time and people were reading this gospel for the first time, they might have read, love your, and expected next the word to be neighbors, right? Because that's reasonable, (laughs) It's reasonable to love your neighbors. And they've heard this command before. It's it's right there in Leviticus 19. Love your neighbor. You know, I I should love my neighbor. That's a great reminder. Thanks, Jesus. But he doesn't say that, does he? He says something no one would have expected. Love your what? Enemies. And this is an imperative, which is to say it's a command. So he's not saying, hey, guys, it would really, really be cool if you could love your enemies. But if not, no worries, right? That's fine. Just suggesting here, it'd be cool if you did that. He's commanding here, love your enemies. And who is this addressed to? Who is this command for? What does verse 20 say? This is for his disciples. Then as now. And if that wasn't difficult enough, he continues with three additional commands regarding enemy love. Do you see it? Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Now, here's the question we need to answer first. Who are our enemies? Who's your enemy? How are they identified? You know what the answer is? The Christian is to view no person as an enemy. No human can be regarded as the enemy of the Christian. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against Satan and his band of jabroni demons 
and the kingdom of darkness. So Jesus isn't saying that it's okay for his followers to identify fellow humans as enemies. In our highly divided and polarized and partisan age, everyone seemingly has an enemy, right? We draw the line in the sand and we say, if you aren't on my side, you're the enemy. Then we can actively work to win while they lose. And we could cheer if they fall because that's what we've been rooting for all along. Republicans hate who? Go ahead. Democrats. Democrats hate. It works out fine for them, right? Because they hate you back. People from this nation hate people from that nation. My team hates your team. My side of town hates your side of town. We go on and on and on. Tribalism sells, doesn't it? And it thus gives us space to be nasty and mean and to use dehumanizing language. But Jesus says, this must not be the case for the Christian. You are a citizen of a better kingdom. And your view of life is not the same as the world. You don't have enemies. You have fellow image bearers who need to be loved and shown the gospel. And as you advocate for this better kingdom. Kingdom. So it isn't that we have enemies. Rather, do you see the language here? It's that other people might regard the Christian as their enemy. They hate you. They curse you. They abuse you on account of Christ. They regard you as an enemy, even as you don't do it in return. You do not hate them. You do not curse them. You do not abuse them. So can they be regarded as your enemy if you don't do any of those things? Surely not. If Jesus leaves no room for kingdom people to hate, curse, and hurt. How can anyone be regarded as the enemy? But you see that Jesus does not leave space to simply feel indifferent toward people who hate you. Where you simply do not lash out. You simply just refrain. It's that he wants you to go all the way in the other direction and seek their good. That's why this is so radical. It's one thing, yes, to not lash back. It's another completely to actually seek their flourishing. Scott McKnight said it this way, enemy love is not a magic formula. It's not a trick. It's a posture towards every human being we meet. We can't do this by saying we will do it or saying we believe it, but by extending in concrete actions the love of God for all others. Similarly, Daryl Box says, the love Jesus commands It's not an abstract love tucked away in the person's inner recesses, but a love that demonstrates itself in concrete actions. I mean, what is love? I can't believe nobody nobody said, baby, don't hurt me. What is love? Now, what is it? Our, Our conception of love is almost entirely shaped by culture. Is that fair to say? You'd be hard pressed to find a piece of American entertainment that doesn't have love as its core, one of its core features. That's music, right? TV, movies. We are inundated with the world's idea of love. And what's that love like? It's based on attraction. It's based on whether we view the person or persons as lovable, whether there is a quality in them that we find pleasing, and whether or not they will reciprocate that love. Further, it's based on entirely on feeling, isn't it? Do I feel love towards them is the question we ask. And that feeling, it could come and go. It can can last a long time or a short time. And it's contingent 
on how they receive our love and how they return it or how they meet our expectations. That's the kind of love that the world has. It's completely based off of consuming and reciprocity. For instance, I want you to consider this article I came across a few years ago from Newsweek. This is what it says. What is love? It's a popular, albeit complicated question. And according to Google, was the most searched phrase in all of 2012. Webster's has several definitions for the word, including strong affection for another, rising out of kinship or personal ties, attraction based on desire, and a tennis score. Even though most people understand these definitions, they don't entirely agree on what they mean, he says, or how they apply it to individuals within the culture. Listen to what he says here, okay? Love is a personal concept and therefore subjective. And that concept evolves throughout our entire lives as we fall into, out of, and back into it again. Although a concrete cultural definition remains a little nebulous, most can agree love has a lot to do with attraction. That's, that's a fair summary of the way our culture views love. But did you hear the language he used? Love is subjective, which means it's different for each individual. It's based on attraction. It evolves, and we can fall in and out of love. Jesus says, that ain't it. See, he isn't interested here on whether or not you feel like loving your enemy, is he? I mean, just think about it. This is a command, yes? How can you command someone to feel a certain way? Which is why Jesus is after the disciples' actions and their will. And all of this must be a matter of the will because they're all non-intuitive, right? Isn't, isn't his commands in 27 to 36 non-intuitive? We don't think like that. It must be through our will because they, they, they don't seem reasonable. They are behaviors that don't come naturally. They must be actions done with intentionality from a heart altered by an encounter with the God who loved you the way he calls you to love others. Jesus' conception of love is not about how you feel. It's about what you do. Don't you see? It's a reorientation of our concept of love, a changing of those default settings. Whereas we talk all about feelings of love that are oftentimes, quite frankly, disconnected from how we act because it's substantially easier to talk about love than it is to actually pursue loving actions that are wholly focused on the object of love. Jesus calls for actions more than feelings. C.S. Lewis talks about this in Mere Christianity. He says that we shouldn't look at the commands to love whether it's neighbor or enemy love, and sit and try to manufacture warm feelings for them. He says, don't waste time bothering whether you love them. Act as if you did. Basically, pretend like you love them. And let that flow into service of them. He says, when you start behaving as if you love someone, you will presently come to actually feel love towards. In other words... If we act as if we love someone, if we sincerely pretend to love that person, if we do the deeds of love, even when we lack the substance, we will often begin to actually find ourselves loving them. Says Lewis, the Christian trying to treat everyone kindly finds himself liking more and more people as he goes on, including people he could not even have imagined himself liking at the beginning. So when we read these commands from Jesus, our, after the initial reaction of this can't be right, we'll likely think, well, I just can't bring myself, right? I can't bring myself to feel love to someone who doesn't love me. Jesus is saying, don't worry about whether you can muster up the feeling. Act as if you do. 
Think of how you would want to be loved and love like that. That's what Jesus is saying. And he illustrates that with actions that might look like, what this might look like, three examples in 29 and 30. Do you see them? If someone strikes you on the right cheek, what are you to do? Turn in the other also. What's he saying? He isn't saying, let's make sure we get this, that the Christian must endure physical or verbal abuse if they have a chance to flee. In other words, he isn't calling Christians who are being assaulted to endure the assault. So if a Christian is in an abusive relationship, for example, they're not called to do nothing and allow the abuse. No, those situations should be, those people should leave that relationship, and if it's physical, the abuser should be in jail, right? Rather, what Jesus is talking about here is when someone insults you, you're to fight the impulse to do what? Insult them back. In Matthew's version of, of this, he includes right cheek. And the reason Jesus says slap you on the right cheek specifically because since most people are right-handed, to be slapped on the right cheek meant what? You backhanded them, which is an incredible insult of the highest degree in this context. You can even take someone to court if they do that to you. So what, what's in view here is revenge. Paying someone back for something they did or said to you. Jesus says don't do it. Don't do it. Fight that impulse. We want so bad, yes, to lash out at those who do something to us. Yes? So bad. We want so desperately to trade insult for insult and barb for barb and gossip for gossip and slander for slander. But Jesus says, this is not the way of a disciple of mine. When insulted, absorb the insult. Resist the impulse to get back to them. They, they curse you. What do you want to do? You want to curse them back. Yeah, right? That's the impulse. But it's a sinful one. You know, in the early 1960s, a federal judge ordered that schools should uh, be integrated, right? Helping lead to the demise of the wretched Jim Crow laws of separate but equal, which made people separate, but they were not treated equally, right? But shortly after this the judicial decision, you know this story. A six-year-old African-American young lady named Ruby Bridges started attending William France Elementary in New Orleans. Every morning, you've probably seen pictures and videos, right? Every morning, a mob of people, mostly adults, would show up before school started and they would scream obscenities at her. Calling her names, threatening to kill her, and more. They, they would say such evil things to this little girl, six-year-old. It was so bad that 25 U.S. Marshals had to escort her to school every day. Well, one day, one of her teachers noticed that Ruby was talking while she was walking into the school as these adults were hurling insults and threats at her. And she told Robert Coles, who was assigned to be her psychiatrist because of the trauma that she must have been going through. And so he saw this. And so Robert asked Ruby, what, was, what were you saying to the mom when you're coming into school? She said, I wasn't talking to the people. I was talking to God. And he said, why were you praying to God? And she said, I was praying for the people in the street. And he asked, Ruby, why would you want to pray for those people? And she said, don't you think they need praying for? See, Ruby said her parents and her pastor taught her to pray for those who persecute her. And she did, even in the middle of it. Even if the impulse may have been to say something back, this six-year-old, far more than those adults hurling vulgarity at her, embodied what Jesus is saying here. 
Don't trade insult for insult. Bless rather than curse. All of this is here and in the verses to follow, built on the premise that the disciple trusts God, knows God sees, knows God hears, and know God will be the one to make everything right in the end. Right? So the need or urge to get our pound of flesh to make sure they pay for what they've said about me or what they've done to me fades away because we have an eternal perspective that trusts that God will vindicate us. God will execute justice. That Matthew 20, 12, 36, every person will answer for every careless word on the day of judgment. God will have justice. You don't need to take it. This point of of, of one not seeking revenge for wrong done is pressed further. Do you see it? When he says that if someone takes your cloak, what? Don't withhold your tunic either. You guys wear tunics? And he pictures, it, it, this picture is of someone taking your goods and not demanding, you not demanding them back. You know, what's interesting about Matthew's version is he says if someone sues you, Sues you for your tunic, just give them your cloak as well. But here the picture is of you are being robbed. It's of a robber coming to you, demanding your coat. But then instead of resisting or fighting them, you freely give him your coat and your shirt too, and you don't seek to exact vengeance later either or want them back. I heard this illustration of one of my professors at Criswell. He told of a guy he knew who was in New York, and someone held him up at knife point. Can you guys imagine that safe city of New York Somebody robbing somebody else? Well, he was robbed at knife point, demanded his wallet from him. Well, the man being robbed said, young man, you must really have a need in order to resort to stealing. And it's cold outside. So he said, maybe you're cold. And he gave him his coat. Then he said, are you hungry? If you're resorting to stealing, you probably need food. And he took him to eat. This confused the robber because he wasn't used to seeing this kind of love. But the man being robbed loved like Jesus did. And he used it to show the love of Christ and the young man's life was changed forever. This is what Jesus is getting after here. If someone steals your coat, go ahead and give him your shirt and don't ever ask for it back. That's pretty demanding and uncomfortable stuff, isn't it? But it's the kingdom ethic. It calls for not only an unwillingness to exact revenge, it calls for radical generosity, doesn't it? And it calls for a loose grip on one's possession, a denial of one's perceived desires, a rejection of rights and fairness, because the follower of Jesus knows who ultimately owns everything, right? Who has bestowed it upon them, and who will see that they will be rewarded. Isn't that what verse 35 says? This means that the kingdom person has an eternal vision rather than a transient one. It means they care more about the rewards of heaven than things of earth that moth and rust destroy and can thus hold on to them loosely and use them for the good of others, even those who we know will never return the favor. So if someone begs from you, what does Jesus say you should do? What's it say? If, 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 if you see someone in need, how should you respond? Jesus says to give and don't ask for it back, which means what? It means you give to people who can't even pay you back if they wanted to. That's kingdom love. See, if, if you see someone who has wronged you in need, you don't say serves them right. They got what they 
got coming to them. You go and you do what? You help them. If you see someone poor begging for help, you don't do what we all tend to do, which is convince yourself in your head that they must have done something to get themselves there. Or tell yourself that if I help, they'll just blow it, right? They'll just blow what I give them on something they shouldn't. Because first of all, how could you possibly know any of that? We're not omniscient, right? And second, what God sees is what matters. Can we agree on that? Yes? And what he sees is a kingdom person who reflects an upside-down ethic from the world. Someone who has a chance to help a person in need, and he therefore cares how you respond. The kingdom person doesn't find a way out of helping the weak and the needy and the beggars. They, they must help if they can because they simply see What do you see? An image bearer, right? In need. And if they were down on their luck, if they were desperate, if they needed help, they would want someone to help them too, right? Truly, what if instead we thought, if I was hurting, if I was hungry, if I was homeless, if I was fleeing violence, if I was cold, if I was reduced to begging, how would I want people who saw me to respond? Would I want them to assume my motives are impure or that I deserve my lot in life or to help me? And then with that answer in our minds and hearts, we do what we would want done to us. Is that not what verse 31 says? N.T. Wright says it beautifully. He says, the kingdom that Jesus preached and lived was all about a glorious, uproarious, absurd generosity. Think of the best thing you could do for the worst person and go ahead and do it. Think of what you'd really like someone to do for you and do it for them. Think of people to whom you are tempted to be nasty and lavish generosity on them instead. These instructions, he said, have a fresh spring-like quality. They're all about a new life bursting out energetically like flowers growing through concrete and startling everyone with their color and vigor. Don't we all know verse 31, right? How many of y'all's mama told you this on several occasions? Do unto others, right? As what? It's always in King, King's English, right? Do unto others. We've heard it so many times, and perhaps the sheer amount of times we've heard it, we have domesticated or softened it in our minds and heart. Because what's it saying? Think about, I want you to think about how much you love some you. Okay? You love you some you, right? <laughs> that was a little too enthusiastic. Think of how you will go out of your way for yourself. Yes? <laughs> You will go out of way for yourself. Think about how you consider yourself, take care of yourself, forgive yourself, give grace to yourself, assume the best positive motive about yourself. Think of how you want people to be understanding with you, patient with you, helping you in your need. Think of all that and then do it for others. That's what he's saying. Think of the lengths you will go to ensure you are taken care of and do it for other people. Love them the way you love yourself. Love them the way you want to be loved. Pause and think. If I was in their very same position, how would I want other people to treat me? And then do that. Daryl Bach puts it this way. He says, it's not simply a command to avoid unfair treatment that one might not wish for oneself. Rather, it is a command to give the same sensitive consideration to others that that one might want others to give. Do you see? 
And this love, this consideration, this acting, even when it costs us or doesn't make sense to us or is against our base impulses, it will be distinct from how the world loves, won't it? It will thus cause us to stand out and attract. How could it not? Who, who is loving like this? Who's loving like this? It's strange, alien, and thus attractive like a warm light in the midst of cold darkness. I recently heard a story of a Turkish officer who raided and looted an Armenian home. He killed the aged parents and gave the daughters to the soldiers, keeping the eldest daughter for himself. Well, sometime later, she escaped, the oldest daughter, and she trained as a nurse. And as time passed, she found herself nursing in a ward of Turkish officers. Well, one night, by the light of the lantern, she saw the face of that officer. He was so gravely ill that without exceptional nursing, he would die. Days passed, and he recovered. One day, the doctor stood by the bed with her and said to him, but for her devotion to you, you would be dead. And he looked at her, and he said, we've met before, haven't we? Yes, she said, we have met before. Why didn't you kill me? He asked. She replied, I'm a follower of him who said, love your enemies. Who could love like that? The human impulse would be to leave him, right? To die, to do nothing. Just let him die. That's what he deserved. But she wondered what Jesus would have her do, and she did that. And that Turkish officer joined the countless many for the last 2,000 years who have sought to harm others only to be bewildered and confounded and perplexed when their victims did them good in the name of Jesus. If we, if we love like the world, which is sadly what we too often see in churches and among professing Christians, what's special about that? What's special about loving like the world? Nothing. But to love like this, it would be peculiar. <laughs> it'd be strange. It'd be foreign, and it'd be attractive. If I were to ask you what the most popular Bible verse is, what would you say almost immediately? Go. John 3.16, Right? You know what the most popular verse was in the early church? Love your enemies. It was quoted in 26 places by 10 different writers in the first 300 years of the church, which makes it the most celebrated command among the first Christians. And would you know what happened? The church grew. Why did it grow? Because there was something peculiar about how they loved even those who sought their death. Christian love was so odd and attractive because the world was so used to loving only those who would love them back or loving only those who could benefit them or could reciprocate or could provide them a favor in the future because that's the natural impulse. What does it say? What does Jesus say in 32 through 34? He says that loving those who love you back, doing good to those who can reciprocate is not special. Isn't that what he says? There's nothing special about that. The world does that. That's what Jesus says. People who don't know Jesus do that. That's just what makes sense to us, right? That's the natural impulse, is it not? To not only love those and do good to those who could benefit us back, but to love those who are like us. That's our natural impulse. Everyone does that. That's not special at all. Even Hitler loved his mom, all right? So for example, says Jesus, if you lend to someone and you hope for and expect to receive back what you've lent, what's special about that? This is like doing someone a favor, expecting that you can cash in that favor later, Right? It's I'll scratch your back if you scratch mine. Jesus says, this is unbecoming 
of a disciple of his. Why? Because disciples should give with no strings attached. Like, think again about giving to somebody who begs. Doesn't he say give to to the one who begs? Someone who is in desperate need or giving to the poor. If your posture is that you will only help those who can repay you, guess what you will never, ever do? You will never meet the needs of the needy because they can't pay you back. I think of payday loans. You guys know payday loans? I know they're a business or whatever, but they're clearly evil, okay? <laughs> what's, the, what's the idea behind them? Well, they set up purposefully in low-income neighborhoods. You know this? Low-income neighborhoods. They don't set up to, next to country clubs, okay? And they act as if they're doing folks a favor, like this is a good deed. They, they make it sound like they are trying to help people who are in a bind. And what do they do? They lend, but they, only, they not only expect what they lent back, but what else? Interest. Sometimes as high as 1,900%. You heard that right. That's not a typo, all right? It's a scam. It preys on those who are in need in order that the business owner can make a bunch of money, right? Is that love? Now, that may be an extreme example, but it's something that's accepted because it's the way people deal with one another in a fallen world. All of our relationships are viewed as consumeristic and contractual, from dating and marriage to friendships and church. Do you know what I mean by that? Do you know what I mean by contractual? That they are based on reciprocity, based on an exchange of goods and services, and that we reserve the right to end the contract at any time. The idea is that we will be part of those things as long as they provide for us, as long as there's something for us to consume. But once those goods and services are no longer provided in the way we want, what do we do? We bail. See ya. If we think the goods can be provided somewhere else, what do we do? We go there. <laughs> We believe we could sever the contract and go where we feel like we could get and get and get. Is that love? Not even a little. But that's the default mode of our fallen hearts, is it not? It's what we societally call love, but it's flimsy, sad, pseudo-love parading around as real thing like the king in, that had no clothes. Love Jesus Love Jesus' way, it's not contractual, it's covenantal, which is to say it's not based on reciprocity. The disciple of Jesus focuses not on what's in it for them, what they could get out of it, or what others can provide. Rather, the love is oriented completely where? In the other direction. In the direction of the one being loved. It's to say, I am going to love you even if you can't reciprocate. In fact, I'm not focused on reciprocity at all because I'm entirely focused on your good, on your flourishing, even if you hate me. That's otherworldly, is it not? Quoting N.T. Wright again, he said, if you lived in a society where everyone believed in this God, there wouldn't be any violence, there wouldn't be any revenge, there wouldn't be any division of class or caste. Property and possessions wouldn't be nearly as important as making sure your neighbor was all right. Imagine if even a few people around you took Jesus seriously and lived like that. Life would be exuberant, different, astonishing. People would stare. And they would, wouldn't they? Because, again, I asked this earlier, who loves like this? Do you? Do I? Like, Do we live with this posture as a way of life? Each one of us is being confronted right now because we can think of times right? When we haven't loved like this. It's uncomfortable because it's strange. It it really is different and counterintuitive and inconvenient, but it's how we're called to love. 
No other option is left for the follower of Jesus. This is to be a habit of life, a reorientation of the heart for those who know this beautiful Christ. But our question, among many others, I'm sure, is this. How? <laughs> how and why would we love like this? What's the motivation? And where is the enabling? The end of verse 35 and 36 tell us, don't they? You are children of the Most High, who is himself kind to the ungrateful and to the evil. He causes his son to rise on good and bad people. He gives common graces. He loves generously. He is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Do you see? When you love like this, you are reflecting the character of your Father in heaven. Because here's what we need to consider, okay? Why don't we love our enemies? Why don't we want to do good to those who hurt us or call us names or gossip and slander about us or mistreat us? Why do we want to get revenge and lash back at them? Why do we want to see them get their comeuppance and not receive our forgiveness? Well, because one, they are our enemy, and two, because we think they don't deserve forgiveness or our love and good deeds towards them. And here's the key. If you hold on to that posture, you'll never love like Jesus calls for here. Why? Because you have forgotten that you were God's enemy who rebelled against him and rejected his commands and attempted to sit on his throne. But he not only forgave you, he sought you, didn't he? And purchased you. Romans 5.10 says, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. 5.8 says that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. 5.6 says, while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Weak, ungodly, enemies, sinners, that's who we were. And yet, and yet, and yet, God sent his one and only son to die for us in the place of us, absorbing all the wrath that we deserve. You know that you were his enemy. I was his enemy. And he loved us to the point that he moved heaven and earth and gave out of his abundance of mercy and grace that he found in himself. He couldn't couldn't find us lovable. He came to rescue the unlovable and the unlovely and to make us lovely. He went out of his way to come and get us even while we hated him. Even when we were alienated from him. Even when we spurred him. Friend, the creator God died only for his enemies. Exclusively for the unworthy and the needy and the wretch. Do you or I deserve that forgiveness? That love? That cost of the God who holds all things by the word of his power dying in our place? Do we deserve forgiveness or grace? You you want to talk about what we deserve? You know what we deserve? We deserve hell. We deserve separation from God. We deserve to be crushed on judgment day. We don't even deserve to have air in our lungs right now, let alone resurrection from the dead. But God. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. And the more you dwell on that, the more you get that, the more you let that sink into your very bones, the easier it will be to love the way Jesus calls us to love. Because then you realize that's how he loved you. 
says Bach again, to be God's child is not only to be brought into relationship where God has forgiven us, it's the beginning of a process of reflecting God's gracious, merciful, and forgiven character to the world. The deeper our understanding and appreciation of what God has done, the better prepared we will be to reflect his character to others. Our loving this way is evidence that we understand. Do you see where the rub is? Our loving this way is evidence that we understand the love God has shown to us. It reflects that we are in relationship with him. As one commentator said, the moral likeness proves parentage. It's like, you know how your kids have physical features like you and how over time they take on some of your characteristics and behaviors and personalities and mannerisms and and that's why they irritate you sometimes, right? Because they're just like you. And you're confronted with the stuff you do that could be annoying, right? We naturally reflect our parents in many ways, good or bad, because, well, they're our parents. We have their DNA. We've been around them for countless hours and days and years, and so we pick up on what they do as we watch them and observe them and unconsciously adopt their characteristics. The same with our heroes, right? We look up to them because we want to mimic them. We want to be like them, and the more we are around them and study them and consider them, the more we will grow to be like them. In an infinitely better way, the more we reflect on who Jesus is, what he's done, and we're overwhelmed by his grace and mercy and kindness and forgiveness, the more we will reflect him, the more we will show the world that we are sons and daughters of our merciful father. Do you see? The one who says, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also, is the one who was betrayed by his friends abandoned by his followers, beaten and falsely accused, yet open not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and is like a sheep before its shears silent. He was beaten and executed in the cruelest way imaginable as he was mocked. You know what he said? Forgive them, Father. They know not what they do. That's love. That's how much he loves You, don't you see that he lived perfectly what he's calling for us here? He he loved without measure even when we deserve the opposite. So can we love the way our Lord calls us to love? Not on our own, not by our own power, not by relying on our own inclinations, but when you gaze upon the Savior who embodied all of this towards you and you behold him and you behold him and you behold him, he'll change your default settings from the inside out. And you'll find it easier to love as he loved because you see that you were an enemy. Yet he loved you in a way that is beyond anything you could ask or think. Let that sink into your bones more and more. And you'll be compelled to love this way because we were loved this way. You were loved this way. And you want to reflect your father to this dark world for your good and his glory.